This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Tao Te Ching is one of my favorite books because I can read passages from it one day and then read those same passages again a month later and my understanding will contain entirely different meanings due to the current state of my life. The book can be timeless and personal to readers as it contains no names, no cities, no events, and no dates. There are more than 100 translated English versions. I've read maybe 10 at this point, and each are remarkable in their differences. The differences are my favorite characteristics, which you will glean a little bit from in my conversation today. A while back, I was looking through a catalog of new releases from Shambhala Publications, and I came across a brand new Tao Te Ching adaptation graphic novel from writer Sean Michael Wilson, an award-winning Scottish graphic novel and comic book author of more than 30 books, in collaboration with artist Carrie Kwok, and a translation from William Scott Wilson, an eminent translator into English of traditional Japanese texts on samurai culture, as well as other classical texts from Zen and Taoism. This trio put together the Tao Te Ching adaptation that is the basis of today's conversation with Sean Michael Wilson. I absolutely love what they've done with this text, where they include many modern-day anecdotes, stories, illustrations, and imagery that is recognizable to those of us reading the book in 2019. This adaptation makes this classic book alive today, instead of alive then. I urge you to find this Tao Te Ching, especially if you are a first-time reader or you want to give the gift of Chinese philosophy to someone you know from age 10 to age 110. Furthermore, this book would be a fantastic version for educators lucky enough to teach Tao Te Ching in their classrooms. The introduction of the Wilson Kwok Wilson book explains the title as well. The meaning of the Chinese characters can be thought of as Tao, meaning the way, De, meaning virtue, inner strength, or morals, and Jing, meaning classic or great book. The full title, Tao Te Ching, means the classic of the way and the power, or the canon of the path and the virtue, or just as the book of the way. Sean and I went deep in this conversation so join us and then drop me a line at classicalideas at outlook.com, on Twitter at classical underscore ideas, or on Facebook at classical ideas podcast. I'd also be delighted if you could take a moment and give me a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get this podcast. So please enjoy my conversation with Sean Michael Wilson on the Tao Te Ching and the graphic novel process.
Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I'm here today with my guest, Sean Michael Wilson, um, who is on the show today to talk about the Tao Te Ching, graphic novels, and more. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome, and I'm glad to talk on your interesting podcast. Thank you. So I'm curious if you can just sort of give a potted bio of yourself to the audience and just kind of tell them whatever it is that you want them to know. Okay, well, I'm from Scotland, Scotland, UK. Um, your lovely Americans have a tendency of calling UK just England, which uh, Scottish, Irish, and Welsh people uh, strongly dislike. <laughs> <laughs> so they please always say the UK or at least uh, Britain. But um, I'm from the Scottish part of it. And, um, but I'm here in Japan now, uh, so I kind of move between the the UK and Japan, and I am a professional comic book writer, or manga, you can say manga-ka in Japanese, or a graphic novel writer, which is the kind of more modern, uh, rather posh version of it, and I've been doing that now for 15 years, and my first book came out in December 2003. So my 15th anniversary just passed last month. And um, it's been my childhood dream since I was a wee boy in Scotland to be a comic book creator. And, uh, of course, the kind of... Uh, when you are a comic book creator, the, the big kind of um, problem on your back is getting off the idea that comic books are just for children or teenagers or are just um, about superheroes, etc., um, and so one of the kind of things which people like me try to do is to say that comic books can be about anything and any level of sophistication, just like music. You can have children's music for a nursery school or kindergarten, and you can have Beethoven and you can have the Beatles. So comic books are the same thing. You can have, you can have comic books for children, you can have comic books for teenagers, and you can have very sophisticated comic books for adults. And so the kind of books we try to do are that kind of um, sophisticated books, but just also with illustrations. That is so wonderful. Um, I've recently started kind of diving into graphic novels a lot more. I've been reading tons of Hindu epics as graphic novels. I've been reading some of the books of the Old Testament presented as graphic novels. Uh, I've recently been discovering the graphic novelist Guy Delisle, um, in all of his graphic novels about traveling. And so, yeah, I completely agree that it's super cool for adults as well. Were you always, so you said you were super artistic growing up as well, right? Um, well, uh, when I say I'm a comic book creator, the first thing that people think is that I went to art college and I didn't. Uh, I was always, uh, I wouldn't say I was super artistic, but I was certainly inclined towards drawing. Um, and then later, literature and reading. Well, my brother is an artist, and my mother is an artist, as in painting with brushes, fine artist. Uh, but I actually studied sociology and psychology and history in university. But the thing is, uh, my, essentially, comic books are sociology and psychology. You have, if your characters in a scene interacting with each other, that's psychology and sociology. So because uh, I am the writer of the books rather than the artist, um, 
essentially writing a comic book is about sociology and psychology and history, and etc. So the two things interrelate very directly. Awesome. Okay, so you have this brand new book out. It's an adaptation of the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. <coughs> And you just mentioned that you were studying history as well in school. Were you have you have you been attracted to classic texts for a long time in your life? Um, I think I suppose on the one hand I can say yes, and on the one hand I say no. Uh, um, yes, as in I was brought up as a Catholic, a kind of Irish style Catholic in Scotland. I'm, I'm Scottish, but from an Irish family, and then of course, uh, obviously. Catholicism is the background in which you're brought up. And uh, although I'm not a Catholic now, um, I'm not particularly keen on any established religion now, um, it's, I, I can feel its influence on me still in the way that I, that I think. Not necessarily a good influence there, but, but it's certainly uh, having been brought up as an Irish Catholic has influenced me a lot in the way I think. Uh, but we might say that, uh, as an adult, my main influence from uh, such religious classics or philosophical classics is to develop beyond that kind of unconscious influence to become more self-aware. So the the way the way that I've read various classics of from world culture and world literature is more a question of self-development beyond that kind of unconscious childhood Catholicism. Excellent. And so travel must play a part in that as well. Like after college and university, I moved to Mexico and England and Canada and Hawaii, just sort of because I was just pulled in certain directions. So after studying all these things and studying history and psychology and sociology, how does travel fit in for you? Because you now are in Japan. Yes. Well, I noticed you just said England there again rather than the UK. Right. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, I did live in the UK. Well, this is one of the problems. Is that I think you uh, <laughs> you went to the south of England, right? Yes. So it's like it's 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 a little bit like saying you went to Missouri. It's the south of America. Yeah. So it's not. Yeah. But still, um, it's I think it's better for us to get into that. I was saying the UK because you went into the country of the UK. Definitely. Anyway, sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> that's I appreciate of, that's it. That's one of my pet topics that I want to try and ask Americans. Please say UK. <laughs> I'm down. I commit to you here and today, Sean, that I will now say UK. I will commit to that. And then you've made it. You've made a Scotsman very happy. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> so, um, as to travel, um, well, let me say something a little bit uh, surprising, perhaps. I'm a little bit sick of travel now, actually. To be honest, mm -hmm. I've traveled. Um, I've traveled to many different countries, maybe 25, 26 countries, and it's it's easy as a European. To travel because of course the countries are so near to you. It's one thing. That's one bad thing about the USA and Japan is that they're not really near to anywhere else apart from two. You got two or three other countries near you, and that's it. In both Japan and the USA, but in Europe you've got about thirty other countries. You know, within an hour or two. And so I've travelled to various thing, places, but um, yeah, now I'm. Of course, I just came back from Thailand uh, uh, three days ago. So I've been traveling just recently, and I learned a lot about Thailand, and I, and I feel that uh, uh, that was very interesting for me. Uh, but generally speaking, I'm a little bit sick of traveling now, actually. 
I, I prefer to um, focus on a kind of inner development, which to me, traveling often, uh, the way people travel, if you, I don't know if you recall, but there's a page in our Dajijing book, and it criticizes the way that people travel. Um, people often refer to traveling as we did Vietnam, or we did Colombia, or something, as if it's a kind of invasion which they came in and um, uh, didn't kind of immerse themselves in, in kind of understanding of the local place or didn't reflect on themselves. So it seems to me I'm, I'm rather against traveling now in general because of the way that most people travel is a, a very kind of mentally and financially ugly type of traveling now. I'm sorry to maybe say a surprising thing there. No, I actually like that. I like it when I get a little curveball answer. It really <laughs> it it throws me for a loop, and it also makes me think a little bit. Um, so I do want to talk a lot today about your Tao Te Ching that just came out from Shambhala, which is a collaboration with you and an artist by the name of Carrie Kwok, right? Yes. So. I kind of want to go a little bit back in time before we specifically talk about the teachings and the way the book is laid out. Um, but what's your first memory of coming into contact with the Tao Te Ching? Well, it's a bit of a, a funny thing because why, when I was a student in Edinburgh, Edinburgh University, um, I went to practice Tai Chi. And uh, in, I actually practiced it in the church hall the Catholic Church Hall of my grandmother's church in Edinburgh. And I thought that Tai Chi and the Tao Te Ching was Tai teaching. I thought it was the same thing. Mm, gotcha. This is when I, was, when I was 22, a young student. So I thought it was actually the same thing. I got confused with the pronunciation. Well, of course, even now, it's not really clear what the pronunciation is. We're saying Tao teaching or Tao Te Ching. So originally I heard of, of, of Thai teaching, I thought it was Thai Chi Ching. Um, so I investigated it a little bit then and, um, and first read it then. So that's um, more than 20 years ago. Then I realized, um, oh, it's a different, it's different Chinese Han, uh, Hanzu, how do you say Hanzi? Hanzu, Hanzu character. Um, and it's... Uh, of course, they're roughly related to Tai Chi and Tao Te Ching, but not not exactly the same. So that was my first. Uh, that's how I came across it by an accident of pronunciation, actually. Did the book, when you read it as a younger guy, did it grab you right away, or was it something that you had to come back to later in order to lure you into its teachings? Well, I would say that it's. It didn't grab me strongly at that point. At that point, I was more influenced by, um, um, in terms of non-Western classical ideas of, of Krishnamurti, the Indian Krishnamurti, whose ideas I thought got to me much more deeply than than Tao Te Ching did. So I would say that this adaptation that we've done has been a very good process for me of learning more about that and reflecting more about it much more deeply than I did 20 years ago when I first came across it. 
And that is, you, were, you mentioned to me earlier about um, a chance to learn things from your podcast. One of the great things about my books is that I learn things myself. Because essentially what my books are, are is kind of um, a kind of summary or a certain degree of uh, simplified version. Um, when something as complicated as the Tao Te Ching, of course, uh, it, you cannot come up with a definitive version. But whatever it is I'm adapting, whether it's Wuthering Heights, the classical classic novel, Wuthering Heights, or... 47 Ronin, which of course is a true story, or the Tao Te Ching. Essentially what we're kind of doing is uh, coming up with some kind of slightly simplified version in some way, even though it's still very sophisticated. And the, the thing about that is that if you want to make a simple version of something, you have to understand it quite well yourself before you can make uh, some version which is more accessible. To people and so therefore when I'm going through all these kind of things I learn too so and of course that's a wonderful thing that's one of the things which I like about doing our books is that I learn so I would say that in terms of specifically the, the Tao Te Ching um, my, my understanding of it is only now becoming fuller. I love that and because You've presented the book in the way that you have. I've actually recommended your version to some high school teacher friends of mine who actually oh. teach the Tao Te Ching in normal secondary schools. And I think that the way that you've presented it is extremely accessible to somebody who might be like your 21-year-old self or however old you were when you were learning about Tai Chi. You know, yeah, I, I wish I'd seen it myself. At yeah, that time. yeah, I would have been, I would have understood it much better by now myself. So, how did you come to work with Carrie and uh, for for the version that you guys made? Well, Carrie and I met uh, a long time ago, actually, almost exactly twenty years ago, when I was living in London, and I he was a student. There's a there's a very uh, famous art college and fashion college in London, right in the centre of London, near Oxford Street, called Central St. Martins. And I was staff there for a short time, and he was a student. And, and of course, I was, I was still a young guy. who was only just maybe three years older than he was. So we became pals then. And we used to go to the, the mod 1960s music clubs in London. You, you were telling me you live in Buffalo, and I, was, I told you I know Buffalo because of the band Buffalo Springfield. Oh yes, I, I love I love that kind of nineteenth British and American nineteen sixties music. That's one of my key loves, and so we used to go to the the nineteen sixties music clubs there in London at the time, and, and we became pals that way. And so there's something nice about that. Like twenty years later, and now we've done a book together. It feels like a kind of uh, culmination of that initial time that we knew each other. Well, you know, and you guys were able to pay homage to that period of music in the book as well. A lot of the art is very inspired by 60s rock and roll, isn't it? Yes, exactly. I was just uh, found that page, um, sorry to go back slightly, page uh, 47, or we should say rather the passage, poem, passage 47. Um, I have related that to a criticism of the shallow idea of travel. 
So people want to to look at that page. It's got the two characters on the top, Europe, white European characters. And it says, so yeah, this year we did La- Thailand and Laos. And he says, next year we're going to hit Indonesia and New Guinea. Yeah. It's kind of a phase of kind of warrior type, I mean, in a warrior in the negative sense, ways of thinking about it. And meanwhile, they're getting served by a poor, rather sad looking Asian lady while they're sitting there and just enjoying themselves. This is not a pleasant type of travel. This is the kind of um, arrogant attitude which the which the Dao would criticise. But anyway, yeah. So I mean, there's a page uh, where um, uh, there's three or four pages in which 1960s, 1970s kind of music and style is featured. So, um, like for instance, passage 69 has two uh, folk doing kind of uh, 1940s, 1950s style dancing, uh, which looks really cool. And then we have um, the Beatles are mentioned in it. Uh, and then there's another page where there's a black lady dancing in disco in the 70s. So, yeah, that kind of musical influence has, uh, has gone into it. And there was another reason for that, very simple reason, is that um, uh, there's two things. One is that Shambhala asked me to uh, set our right side modern pages in contemporary context and that's the kind of a essential basic thing about the book that we should mention um, uh, I suppose the inclination for most people would be to set it in ancient China uh, but uh, there's only about three pages which are set in ancient China the majority of it are set sometime within the last hundred years and so by jumping around to various eras it gave Carrie a chance to enjoy drawing different types of clothes and different styles, which which is pleasant for him as an artist. Yeah, and I'm looking through the book right now as well. I have it right here on my desk, and there's so many things in there that resonate with my own life, not just like John Lennon lounging in Central Park, but also on teaching number 66, there's a beautiful waterfall and a, within within walking distance of my house is a waterfall that is nearly identical to Ooh. to that one. I wonder. And so I'm reading your book, and I'm like, holy <laughs> moly, this is the Glen Park, Williamsville, New York waterfall. And Ooh. I just absolutely loved it. So I was clicking left and right with the imagery because mm-hmm. that, that modern context does make it accessible to the reader. Well, the um, this was... Shabala's idea uh, originally. Um, when I, uh, this is a kind of, con- there's, a, there's a certain conflict here, often between the creator and the publisher, or specifically between the artist and and the money, the, art, the artistic way of doing things and the need to do things within capitalism. And so one of the things is that I often want to do things close to the original. And the, the normal inclination of publishers uh, is, of course, to sell a lot of copies. And the, the normal inclination is to say, let's modernize it. And there is a certain conflict between those two. Um, uh, uh, in a way, that people say there's a conflict between Taoism and Confucianism, um, which is reflected in the book, between the right-wing and left-wing ways of looking at life now. Uh, but so 
my inclination is to try to stick close to the authenticity or be or be authentic to the original. But Shambhala wanted us to set it in a modern context um, for the reason that it's accessible to modern readers and also because they maybe thought that was interesting. So the thing is how to set it in a modern context but still keep it authentic. And that's the kind of central con uh, conflict of, of the book. Which, and I, but I think we've pulled it off well. I'm very pleased with how it's, it's come out. Oh, yeah, it's definitely impressive. And for me, it's very rereadable as well, because this is something that I would want to go back to, to just kind of savor specific teachings on different days and how I'm feeling, but also to um, look at the interpretations that you guys came up with as well. So it's really cool. Did Thank you, you um, how did you choose the translation? So I know you have a translation here by a gentleman, William Scott Wilson. <coughs> How did yes. you go about uh, choosing a translation? Because there are so many. Well, the, this is uh, that's very simple. Um, William Scott Wilson, of course, he's the, he has the same surname as me, and they're very similar names. That was Sean Michael Wilson, William Scott Wilson, it's the same kind of three-barrel name kind of yeah. thing. And people presume that he's my father or my brother, and they actually were not uh, related, but. Well, now we've done about five books or based on his translations. And so now uh, it feels like we almost are related. I call him my Uncle Bill as a joke, and he calls me Laddie. Nice. Putting on, putting on a Scottish accent. And uh, uh, so we, we've kind of become, uh, it does feel almost like he is my uncle now. And, and so there, there's no question that we have to use his translation. And um, he is a very, uh, very erudite gentleman in terms of translating Japanese and Chinese, and his knowledge of Japanese and Chinese culture are far beyond myself. Um, well, my no my knowledge of China is very shallow, but my knowledge of Japan is moderate, let's say. Uh, but he his knowledge is is very deep, and he was. Um, Two years ago, he was awarded the, uh, the what's he called, the Order of the, what was it called? A very prestigious order from the Japanese emperor. He was awarded that, the Order of the Rosie, Order of the Rising Star, I think it is. So he was given that, uh, which is, of course, very pleasing for him, a lifetime's translation of Chinese and Japanese uh, texts into English. You said you did five, uh, five books with him? Uh, yeah, I think this is the fifth one. Uh, this is the first Chinese-focused one. But we have his translation of the Book of Five Rings, uh, Miyamoto Musashi's uh, Gorin no Sho, it is in Japanese. Uh, our visual adaptation is based on his translation. And then um, we did another book on Miyamoto Musashi's life, which was partly based on William Scott Wilson's book about him. And then we did a book called The Demon's Sermon on the Martial Arts, which is looking at uh, Shinto and uh, Buddhist. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not really martial arts in terms of the fighting element of martial arts, but the philosophical element. And that was based on Bill's translation. 
Yeah, so we've done, we've done, um, is it four or five? I'm losing count now. Yeah, I think that oh. was it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, excuse me. Um, just to say that we should, that we should mention a very simple point here about how the Aradadi gene book is done. Um, in terms of Bill's translation, what I thought when Shambhala asked you to do this, because the first question is always, do you think this would make a good visual version? And then I have to quickly think about how to do that. And we could say that almost anything could be done in a visual comic book way, but it depends on levels of suitability and how we can do that. And what I thought would be good for this particular book is to keep Bill's translations as they are and put them on the left side page of every double spread page. And then we would then put our new textual and new visual interpretation on the right side page. So that's very unusual. Now, I think I've never seen any book done, not comic book anyway, done just like that. I think probably there has been, but I can't recall any. So every left side page of the book has Bill's, William Scott Wilson's uh, translations. And every right side page has our new visual textual interpretation. And I think that gives a certain unique quality to the book. It certainly looks aesthetically pleasing. Okay, so something that's really interesting, one of my hobbies is reading different translations of the Tao Te Ching whenever I'm um, doing some study for my teaching or for the podcast or whatever. I love the Tao Te Ching. I think it's fantastic. And something that's so cool about the different translations of the Tao Te Ching is the length of the lines. So some versions, uh, I'm thinking of Steve Addis and Stanley Lombardo. They have a translation also out on Shambhala where the first line on teaching number one is only six words in length. And the first line in your version with William Scott Wilson, there are 12 words in the first line of the first teaching. So twice as many words in the William Scott Wilson version as in the Addison Lombardo version, which is really cool because you can glean so many different things within the addition or subtraction of six words. Do you happen to have the other translation that you could read out? Because I'm quite interested. This is something that you know uh, more about than I, so I would like to learn. Yeah, absolutely. You in this case. So could you read it, please, if you have it? Yeah, teaching one, the first line of the Addison Lombardo version is simply this. Dao called Dao is not Dao. <laughs> wow, that's very different. Let me read out um, Bill's version. The way that can be articulately described is not the unchanging way. So we can see a certain, um, we can see that it's about the same thing or a version of the same thing, but it's very substantially different. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, there are so many amazing versions. There's the Stephen Mitchell version, the William Martin version, your version, Addis Lombardo. There's one by Brian Brown Walker that I really like. And, like, I don't necessarily like one more than the other, but if you just look at that one sentence that I read and you read just now, look at how different that is, and then think about translating that to, like, a visual medium 
like you've done in this version, it's just quite limitless, the possibility. Uh, I, I can I can understand why you're interested in that, and that's a good, intelligent hobby to have. Um, let me just say one thing connected to that. Um, when I... Uh, there's a question, of, of course, how did I decide to come up with their interpretations? What was the process? When I read that, it reminded me of uh, a kind of wider philosophical consideration of the idea of what we can say beyond language, which mm. um, people like uh, Wittgenstein with their very complicated philosophy, um, and also Scott Walker, not not the rather silly politician that you have now, but the, oh my gosh. <laughs> the, 19, the 1960s uh, uh, singer who's still making very good music now, he referred to his modern music as, as, as partly uh, trying to go into things beyond language. And so that came to my mind when I was reading this. And so the, the right side visual version and new textual version, what we have mentioned, um, but the way is hidden behind what we can name and observe. So that, that was my interpretation of it. And I think, that's, I think that is a central thing about human existence. And because language is in our facilitator and our barrier. So that when, when, we, look, when we look at the, the, the woman in the picture is looking at a tree, now what we call a tree in English or key in Japanese. And on the piece of paper that she has the book, it has the word tree and it has the Chinese word for tree and it has the Hindu word for tree. It has different, different languages from the planet for the word tree. And so the point is, of course, that uh, that object is none of those words. It's just what we use to take in the world. And it, unfortunately, a lot of people, maybe especially those who are kind of nationalist and uh, kind of insular minded in America or Britain or Japan, um, a lot of times they don't reflect on the fact that this language is just as much a barrier to understanding the world as it is a facilitator. And I think us understanding that is a very important um, philosophical thing. You know, and Sean, whenever I got this book, I was thinking like, okay, I'm going to read this Tao Te Ching translation. It's going to be a really fast read, and then I'll have a really fun conversation. <laughs> and the the book is, it's a slow burn. It is not something that I, that I tore through because I found myself lingering on those pictures that Carrie drew and the texts that you added. And I'm looking at that picture that you just mentioned on Teaching One where the woman is staring at the tree. And it's not a simple thing. I couldn't just let it go. Well, that's good. As I said to you earlier, one of the kind of uh, missions, <laughs> almost a religious mission, of people like myself is just trying to show that comic books can be very sophisticated. Uh, and this, our Daojing illustrated version is an example of that. Um, but uh, let me uh, pick you up on one point. You you said there are Carrie's illustrations in the, in the text which I added. Now, um, this is a very kind of a basic but important thing about how comic books are made. Um, uh, generally, uh, I, I, I don't think you meant this by what you said, but um, the text is not added after the art. The art, the text comes before the art. Oh, good. Okay, I didn't know that actually. 
So, well, it's, it's a very common um, uh, presumption and an understandable one because, of course, people uh, look at the finished product and then the most the thing which hits you first, of course, is the art. But it's like it's like looking at a movie and the first thing that hits you first is the actor's face or their, or their, their voice, etc. But, of course, the, that's the end of the thing. The beginning of the film is a script, is words, mm. and and the comic book is the same thing. Not normally, not always, but the normal thing with the comic book, a graphic novel, is that you write a script, which is somewhat similar to a film script, but it, um, it's it's like an element of a film script and an element of a novel, but it's a, it's a thing in itself. It's a specific type of writing in itself, and so therefore, when um, I think I actually uh, I have a sketch this. This, oh, I, I actually posted it on the Shambhala uh, Instagram thing, which I did a couple of weeks ago. Um, I sketched this for Kai because did, in this case he didn't quite get what I was thinking about the visual layer, and he made his very beautiful version based on my very rough sketch. But normally what I do is just describe it in words, and then if the artist doesn't understand what I'm talking about, then I sketch it too. Um, so the the artist draws this based on the text which I have done, uh, and the uh, the dialogue, of course, is added last in terms of the process, but it's written up right at the beginning. It's, yeah. it's an entire part of the whole process. I really loved that uh, that diagram that you posted on Shambhala's Instagram page, which I think everybody should go look at because. It really shows a piece of the process that you don't see along the way, and how much work actually goes into making something come out in a shiny, glossy version that we can all appreciate. Yes, this this book took us about two years to do, so it's a substantial uh, investment in time, and um, much more complicated than people realize the process of making comic books. But a very it's a very artistic type of. Uh, writing and and drawing i really uh, i like comic books that's why i do them i respect them and i enjoy them can i ask you about a few of your favorite teachings within the book because there are 81 yeah. um, right. so as a high school teacher i make my students write a paper called the Tao of me <laughs> me being them and so I want to ask a question that I'm going to call the Tao of Sean, just for the heck of it. Mm -hmm. So I've read the Tao, which has the 81 teachings a few dozen times. My favorite teachings, they sort of change every year, and the meanings change for the spot I'm in in my life, whether I'm busy or melancholic or quiet or, like, manic. Thinking about this, I make my students, when they're reading the text, pick their favorite three teachings and then spontaneously interpret why those teachings are connected to their lives at this given point in their life. So can you tell me maybe two or three of your favorite teachings and then kind of explain briefly why each one speaks to you? And if you felt like reading any passages, um, that would be fine as well. Okay. You you said they're spontaneously inter interpreting, and... Um, that, I mean, that, that's generally how I approached this version. Because a lot of times when I do my comic books, they're, they're very well kind of plotted out. And, and so what I decided to do with this one was just to approach it in a very poetic 
uh, not stream of consciousness exactly, but a very poetic and open way, because the the, the Jing is inherently poetic and ambiguous and open. So I thought, okay, let me approach our version in that way too. So I, I a lot of times when I read Bill's original and thought about it a little bit, I, I wrote from feeling um, rather than thinking it out too much. Uh, now, you mentioned some, I think, very important ones, which I also agree with, and I'd like to add a little bit on top of that, but just to mention your ones first. So you, you said that um, passage, poem, passage, or teaching 34, expect no fame. And I think that one is very, very important for the contemporary world. As I said, Shambhala wanted us to put it into this contemporary setting. And I think that, especially for you Americans, um, you seem to have a fame-obsessed yeah. culture, and not in, not in a healthy way. And people like yourself are maybe kind of um, trying to go against that and, and develop uh, or resist that. I mean, you, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but the, the word glamorous, I learned this from Alan Moore, the, the very, very intelligent British comic writer, English in this case. Um, <laughs> the word glamorous comes from glamour, and glamour means to cast a, cast a spell upon. Hmm. So, and that's what things like a lot of American, mainstream American television, that's what they are. They're kind of ca- casting a zombie-like spell on the person. And so people in America are under a zombie-like spell of glamour and fame and also, of course, power and money. And these are very uh, dangerous things which kind of um, don't make you happy and certainly uh, most of the time they don't make you happy and they certainly don't make you kind of deeper and more knowledgeable. So... This uh, passage 34, which we have, um, I the illustration that we have on the right side is a just a kind of seed coming from a plant, and I'll read it out. It says, "Does the flower expect extravagant praise for doing what is natural to it?" And it moves down as the seed falls from the tree. It simply does its good work and doesn't think of fame. And then later we see that it's taken root and it's growing. It follows the way and blooms for all to see. And then the, the last illustration at the bottom is a cute little girl looking at how this flower has bloomed a few months later. And so the thing is, people could say, that, oh, this is a kind of hippie thing, but this is reality. This is more pure and simple and beautiful than all the kind of glamorous power and fame you see on American movies. Um, but appreciating the beauty of a flower and how it, it, it seeds, it falls from the parent tree, blooms by itself, and reddens or blues or whatever colour it's going to become, and the beauty of the green of the stock, and a child appreciating that, that's very important, that simple beauty. And we really need to have that uh, in ourselves every day. That drawing looks like my daughter, too. Oh, <laughs> another coincidence. She does. Well, uh, yeah. 
Let me, sorry, I'm speaking a lot about that. There's several things to say about this. The next one you said was 56. And you said that it spoke to you because the idea that um, those who know don't speak and those who speak don't know. Of course, that's a very famous phrase. I don't know. Who's, who, where's the original of that from? Do you know? I, I can't remember. It seems like a very, a very, very old phrase, that one. But anyway. I'm sure that a listen, I'm sure that some listener out there is knowing it and yelling it into their headphones right now. It's so yeah, and so. I imagine that maybe uh, originally from China, but possibly not. Maybe from Shakespeare. Anyway, so um, in our version of that, fifty-six, um, you have a woman. Uh, in this case, this is a rather kind of um, left-wing, right-wing, politically focused page. She is mouthing off, as many people do, criticizing poor people and homeless people. And she's saying, oh, you can't give them good houses because they'll just burn them down and they'll just make a mess. And no, 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 no. So she's kind of um, complaining from a very arrogant, elitist, privileged position. And then her friend is listening to her and not agreeing. Uh, and then in the second illustration, there's only two illustrations on this page, we see that friend helping out in a kind of soup kitchen type thing and we see a good connection between her and a homeless man that she's handing a bowl of soup to and she says, how are you today Mr McCarthy? And he replies, all the better for seeing your smiling face Susan as he receives the bowl of soup in his hand, the cup of soup and so the thing about the thing about that is that, um, it's, as you said, people who a lot of times people who speak, and we were mentioning Fox News and this kind of American mainstream uh, news, they speak and they speak and they speak and they speak and they speak, and everything they're saying is kind of shallow and ugly, right? But mm-hmm. um, a lot of times, unfortunately, uh, people who are more deep thinking don't get a chance to speak. Now, I, I'm only I'm only focusing on American culture because you're American now. I'm, I'm not specifically attacking American culture. We can say a very similar thing about Japanese culture too, but for different reasons. Or we could say a similar thing about British culture, but for maybe different ways and different reasons. But the, but the basic point is that, um, unfortunately, often the people who are in power drown out other more sensible, reasonable ways of looking at things. And I think that's a very, very important and a big problem in our world now. You know, Sean, that really reminds me of something, too, because you may or may not have heard about this debate that uh, has come to a head in the United States regarding building some type of wall structure on the southern border with Mexico. And so yes. I, I used to live in Mexico, so whenever I hear about things like a wall, I have been on the other side of the what, side of the yeah. <laughs> the and, other side of that, yeah. And the people to me who I personally know in my life who are um, vehemently um, in favor of this wall structure have, to my knowledge, never even been within 100 miles of that border. And they're the loudest people that talk about it. 
And I've been on the other side of what would be that wall. And I'm just basically thinking about all the people that I know on the other side of that wall and how the people who have never gone anywhere near it, who happen to be some of the luckiest people I've ever met in my life, when lucky people talk about the unlucky as if they are some type of invading horde, it just makes me really sick, you know? Yes, it's, it's a very, um, un- let's say, unfortunate. Um, the problem, um, but in another way, we could say it's very interesting. We're, we're, we're dealing with basic human conflicts now, basic human dynamics. Or, and, and one of the good things about the United States of America now is that um, you are at least facing these problems. Maybe in most people are dealing with it in negative ways, but at least uh, you're kind of in the fight now in some way. It's just I, I hope the more positive side of your country wins. Uh, but the thing is, uh, one of the problems is that uh, when you criticize that kind of narrow nationalist or uh, ethnocentric way of looking at things or uh, elitist way of looking at things, um, people often get annoyed. They don't want to know. It makes them more against you. It makes them think less. And this is, I think, maybe a central problem that we have. How, how can we move towards something positive? Now, that's already a big question because for some people, that wall is positive. They think, oh, this is a protective thing and we need that. And I saw on this Fox News the idea of they were, they were using the analogy of um, the people in uh, your government have a wall protecting them, as in a physical wall around the building. Mm. So why don't we have a physical wall around the whole country? But of course, now that is a kind of thing which seems logical, but it's very illogical. A wall, a hundred yard wall around a building is fundamentally different from a two or three hundred mile long wall. So the, the analogy is a misleading one. And so this is a very, very important thing, which, and again, Britain is also going through a similar thing with the whole idea of Brexit. Should we leave the EU or not? Uh, the kind of thing is, um, how are we going to think about these problems? How are we going to decide what we want to do with our societies? And beyond the idea of, of course, I'm very left-wing, uh, but beyond the idea of left-wing and right-wing, there's, there's the question of how can we think as people? And the basic thing is we need to be able to self-reflect. We need to be able to analyze things. We need to be able to consider things logically. And so that is what we should try to be able to do. Unfortunately, a lot of the kind of conservative wing ways of thinking about things, they seem to not want to encourage people to think logically or, or analyze things or self-reflect. They seem to want to encourage people to think emotionally and it just, emotionally in a negative way, a knee-jerk, emotional, unconscious, kind of um, group-based, collective reaction. And it's not a good basis for how to organize our societies. Yeah, wow. Okay, I'm going to have to think a lot about this as well. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not, I was no, speaking too much. Sorry. No, it's spectacular. And I, this is something that I missed so much about, actually, when I lived in the U.K., is that I got to have conversations about this all the time that really pushed me in my thinking about the world 
You know what I mean? Like you can't did, get. Do you think that uh, Brit- that British people? have a tendency to think about these or talk about these things more than Americans. I don't know actually. Oh, I, I do. Um, but it, this was in 2009 and 2010. And so much has changed in both of our countries mm-hmm. between 2010 and 2019. I mean, so much has changed. Yes. And so I think that there are so many more conversations. There's a lot less complacency. <laughs> In, in the U.S. now compared to what there was. So I think that the awareness um, is shooting up a lot. So can we talk about something a little uh, happier for a second? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so, you, uh, well, I, I would like to mention about uh, passage 71, but you have some other thing you, you wish to see? Oh, um, yeah. So I, I have a hobby that I've taken up recently that, I was reminded of while reading the book. So in my in my passage numbers here, um, I want to I want to trade out number seventy one for number thirty seven. Is that okay oh, with you? All right. Let me go back. So, I have the book in my hand. Thirty seven. Right. Yes. In number thirty seven, it says the way never acts, yet nothing is undone. And so this reminds me of how busy the world is doing stuff completely independent of all human beings on the planet and so i've taken up a hobby lately of shooting time-lapse videos and when i play back my time-lapse videos at high speeds i see the trees dancing the leaves moving across my yard cars zipping by clouds in motion across the sky and these videos really reminded me of number 37, the way never acts yet. Nothing is undone. Do you have any like hobbies that you um, would say that you do that are sort of like inspired by Tao Te Ching or that you see within Tao Te Ching? Like, do you have any activities in your life that really connect this text? Um, well, let me say what I think about your hobby. Cause I think that is an, a very good example of how technology has helped us understand the world better. Yeah, and of course, uh, a lot of a lot of people are rather kind of anti-technology, and they think of it as kind of um, in some way destroying community, uh, or, or for instance, destroying jobs. Uh, but this kind of technology is a good example of how it's allowed us a kind of extension of our consciousness in a in a very very powerful way. Really, if we went back uh, more than two thousand years. To, to the people writing damaging reading it later um, they, if that would have seemed like an astonishing magic power to them um, like a kind of only something a shaman could have in a drug fueled mm-hmm. state of being able to slow down or speed up awareness of nature around them and really we have that technology now and it's and again we forget how massively powerful that is. It's a wonderful thing. Um, and uh, sorry, I think it does actually relate to a couple of the passages in our book. Like, for instance, if you look at uh, 16. So I, I'm, I'm in the habit of calling it passage. That's, I don't know if that's the correct way to refer to it, but I think that's my poem passage. Um, in 16, we've got the art on the right side is falling leaves return to their roots. And that's spread out over the page, and you can see a leaf 
falling off from a branch, falling through the air. And then the idea is that it will eventually go back into the ground and therefore possibly back into the tree again. Now, that is actually an ancient Chinese saying, which I read when I was a student in Edinburgh University. So again, this is a, a pleasant thing. I'll be able to use this more than 20 years later. But um, that's the kind of thing that you could look at and really appreciate with your, uh, the, the uh, what did you call it, time-lapse? Yeah, time-lapse video. Right, time, I mean, time-lapse video, you could, we have an illustration of this, and of course there's a certain beauty in this non-moving illustration. But you could, I imagine you could actually see the process of the leaf falling to the ground and watch that in your video in a way which would be very beautiful and help you understand that more. Um, as to your specific question, you were talking about, do I have any hobbies? Yeah. Well, I think maybe the thing we mentioned already, music. Um, and I put music into our, our version of this. Uh, but um, to... Um, uh, to go on to what well, it's actually mentioned it's connected to 71 as well because you were talking about the idea of the sickness of being certain yeah and again I think that's very very important because um, that page 71 what she's got is she has there's a kind of female um, interviewer interviewing another uh, female scientist and um, this female scientist uh, says we don't know what causes this phenomenon at the moment? And the interviewer says, well, you have no idea? And the female scientist says, not at this point, no. And the interviewer says, well, you don't seem very disappointed by that. And the scientist says, why should we be? For a scientist, an unknown phenomenon is not something to make us feel depressed or annoyed. It presents a new area of research. I'm glad. Hmm. Now, I think that is a very, very important thing. And I put that into the position of a scientist because maybe it's a good, uh, sharp way to put that. But it's something for us all to know. Um, the, the ability to take ambiguity, which is another ancient phrase, and I've forgotten who said it. The ability to take ambiguity is very important and very positive. And then... And this, this scientist expresses it as a positive thing that we don't know what the answer to that is. We don't know. We don't have a theory. We don't have research. Maybe we've just got a rough hypothesis. But that's okay because we can learn more and we can develop. And we our, our understanding can increase. And because she's a scientist, she means our understanding can increase based on a, a certain um, rational and uh, reasonable way of approaching it. Now, a lot of times, if we look at the wall, this wall which Trump and some other Americans want to build, a lot of it seems to be based on the idea of, of feeling attacked by uncertainty. Hmm. But if, if they could um, take in these kind of um, ancient classical ideas more, one of the things could be that life is uncertain. We don't need to build all these walls in order to protect us from something when life inherently is uncertain it's okay we can be fine within that yeah and you know i don't what's really funny about uncertainty 
is that no one can say for certain what they're going to be doing tomorrow. We can predict to the best of our ability what we're going to be doing tomorrow, but uncertainty, anything can happen. You know, like say I'm fortunate enough to live to a very old age and I'm on my deathbed and I'm dying. I can still learn new things even in my last moments. You know, well, like yes, because uh, we never, we almost never think of it in that way. But um, uh, why not? That would be a much more positive way of looking at the world. And as I said, that one of the problems with this kind of way of thinking about things is that people dismiss it as a kind of hippie, idealistic thing. And this is a big mistake because, first of all, the the right wing conservative ways, nationalist ways of looking at things, they are just one way of looking at the world. They're not inherently more realistic than this kind of so-called hippie way of looking at the world. It's just different ways of looking at the world. And we have to ask ourselves, which is the most useful? Which is going to actually help us create a healthier, happier self and a healthier, happier society? And these kind of ideas, this basic idea of being able to put up with uncertainty, it's not a strange hippie idealistic thing. It's a realistic way of living your life. So, Sean, we're sort of coming to the end of our time here today, but you mentioned earlier that the book took you about two years, you and Carrie and um, William Scott Wilson, about two years with Shambhala. What were some of the biggest lessons that you learned about about anything it can be about the Tao Te Ching, it can be about the world. I don't even care. But what were some of the biggest? What were some of the biggest things that you learned throughout those two years of that process? Uh, well, maybe, there, maybe there's there's some things about some of the difficulties of making the book that maybe I shouldn't go into actually. <laughs> I might get in trouble. Oh well, don't get in, uh, but, don't get in trouble. It's not worth that. <laughs> but um. Uh, hmm. Well, I, I think there's maybe nothing I can say about that that won't get me into trouble. I should maybe go into something else. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, so how? What? What would you say are some of the biggest ways your appreciation of the Tao Te Ching changed from when you first encountered it until today, when we're sitting here talking about it? Well, there's, there's two things that I'm very glad about understanding both of them. The first thing is that 20 years ago when I first came across it with my Tai Chi misunderstanding, um, I didn't realize how relevant the Tao Te Ching was to our life now. Mm. And in two, two specific ways, I say the kind of right-wing, left-wing conflict, which is um, uh, very strong in the USA and the UK now. Um, and also a focus on environmentalism, which of course is very important for the world in general. Um, the Dajing relates quite directly to both of those aspects. So like for, for example, in, um, uh, in 29, it has, uh, passage 29, it has Mao, and I'm using Mao, it could just, it could just easily have been Hitler, mm-hmm. or Stalin, or any of these kind of uh, dictators. And one of the key things about this Taoist way of looking at the world is that we, if we force things from a, a, a position of great power, then things become distorted and ugly. 
And of course, that's a very important thing that um, uh, when those so-called communists tried to kind of create a different society, they made a mess. With Stalin and Mao, the big mess of Russia and China. Uh, and so, um, in a way, the Chinese should have been listening to their own classic text here and avoided that. Um, but it's a kind of classic problem for all of us, not just the Chinese. How can we organize our society? And um, the Daojing talks about that in a way which maybe is very useful for us to learn now. And it seems to me and to a lot of other um, researchers that the, the, the version of human political philosophy that we have, which fits the Tao best, is anarchism. So not the fascism of, of Hitler, not the rampant capitalism of Trump, and not the kind of di dictatorial, dictatorial kind of pseudo-communism of Mao, but uh, a kind of anarchism which is based on a more natural way of relating to each other and the world in a way which is more spontaneous and more free and where people voluntarily come together. I was pleased to see that the Tang directly relates to that, because I think that's a central uh, question of our time. And then it also connects to environmentalism. So you mentioned the idea of 48, how the world would recover without humans in it. So obviously that's a key problem now that we are polluting the world. Um, and the political element relates to that because uh, a lot of the times the people who are polluting the world the worst are the big capitalist corporations. And so in passage 48, what we have on the right side is a car park in the top. And what I've written is, uh, we have damaged the world with our meddling. And with further meddling, we hope to put it right. If we did nothing out of the natural, it would put itself right. And so that relates to both environmental and the kind of Taoist uh, element of, or the anarchist element in Taoism. Um, and I didn't know that when I first read this 20 years ago, that it related very directly, not even in an obscure way, but quite directly to these kind of central issues that we're dealing with now, of how to not make a mess of our environment and how to organize our societies in positive ways. I love that we get to talk about number 48 a little bit because that also reminds me of a book by um, a gentleman named, I believe his name is Alan Weissman, and the book is called The World Without Us, and it's if all human beings disappeared today. Uh, yes. But, yeah. yeah, but if our if all of our stuff was still here, how long it would take the, <laughs> to, the world to filter through our remains? Uh, yes, yes, I know the one you mean, right, yes. It's a, it's a phenomenal book, and number 48 in your book really is that book in a nutshell. In so, one page, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in one page. So he wrote about it for 300 pages, <laughs> and you wrote a total of 10 lines, it looks like, um, and it encapsulated the whole book, and I just love that. And that book is so good. So if you haven't read that, you should. Oh, I've heard of the ideas, and obviously I must have heard of the ideas because that's, that's where it came from to make this page. And there's, as you know, there's two or three other pages basically on the same kind of thing too. There's the other page, I forgot what it is now, where the, the plant is growing over the big skyscraper. Mm, um, yeah. So it has a similar connection. Um, yes, but uh, Alan Wiseman, is it? I believe so, yeah. 
And the the okay. the picture you just mentioned um, of the plant growing over the building, it's like the plant is being cheeky about it. It's like waiting. <laughs> it's like waiting for humans to cut it down. But like we forget, and then the plant is like na 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 na. I grew up the building. Well, th- this is as I say, one of the reasons why this stuff is not a hippie idealist stuff. This stuff is reality. The plants do come back when we make a mess of the situation. The, there's a, I, I live near the university here in Kumamoto, and um, one unfortunate bad tendency that the Japanese have now is to cut down all the trees when they're building a new house, which is very much opposite to the image of Japanese people loving nature. But unfortunately, they have a very bad tendency now that when they build a new house, they cut down all the trees from the garden hmm. and then don't replace them. And I've been criticizing this because it's very, uh, again, not environmentally friendly and quite opposite to Japanese traditional image. But near the university, they cut down about 40 trees, a very nice old garden that's been there for a long, long time. And I noticed a few months ago that there's one little dandelion tree or plant is growing up there again, mm-hmm. just in a very similar way to as we've done in that page in our book, the nature is reasserting itself despite us making a mess of it. Well, Sean, um, I have really enjoyed this conversation, and I really, uh, I really enjoy your adaptation of the Tao Te Ching that you collaborated with uh, William Scott Wilson and Kerry Kwok on for Shambhala. I think you guys did a great job, and the relevance and the modernity of the Tao Te Ching in 2019. I mean, it's there, it's all there and it's our world today. And there's so much to be gleaned from it. And I'm really glad that you guys have put the um, artistic take on it that you have because, you know, it's our world and this is, this book is thousands of years old and you can see it everywhere you go. Yeah, well, that's the that was the original idea, um, which Shambhala wanted, and I think I think we've done a good job on it. I'm happy with it. Can you uh, can you kind of tell the audience where to find your work um, on the internet or wherever if you uh, want to direct their attention to something? Sure. Well, you can just type my name in, Sean Michael Wilson, the the real spelling of Sean, the Irish spelling. <laughs> yes. S-E-A-N, um, uh, Sean Michael Wilson, and, and it will come up straight away in the Google search. And you can see my website, and then all my books are there. I've done about uh, how many? 30, this is 34th or 35th book, I'm forgetting. Um, I've done a lot of books of, and a variety of different subjects, not just uh, Japanese and Chinese culture. I've done... Um, uh, self-written books, my own autobiography in Scotland. I've done adaptations of classical novels like Wuthering Heights or Christmas Carol. And then I've done books on uh, kind of uh, related to Western culture, Western history. So I've done a whole bunch of things, so please check out my books. We need the sales. This is capitalism still, unfortunately. Yeah. We need the sales. <laughs> yeah, you got to pay the bills. Um, and well, well, Sean, you've gained a new reader in me as well. So, oh, um, that's good. If nothing else, you've gained me. So hopefully that will mean something to you in the long run. Um, yeah, sure. 
But uh, thank you so much, sir, for coming on Classical Ideas. It's a bit, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.